Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of Horror Palooza, the horror podcast that's got red on it. My name is Sir Ian Dangerous, a.k.a. your Uncle Frank, and you can find me on Twitter at Sir Ian Dangerous or at Skinless Wonder, and on Instagram at Sir Ian Dangerous. Welcome back to the show, and if you've been listening to Episode 1 or 2 or Season 1, then you know that every October I set myself the task of watching 31 horror movies, one for every day of the month. Nice big fat marathon every October, and it's a lot of fun because I, I get to come on here and talk about it afterwards. That's not all I do, however. It's not just a marathon willy nilly. Oh no, I have rules. I have rules I have to follow in order to get through the month, and those rules are that I can't watch any movie that I've seen in the previous five years if i watch multiple movies from the same franchise they all count as one movie i have to watch at least three movies three films in a language other than english and i have to have at least one film representing every single decade for the last eight decades that means the 1940s and before the 50s the 60s 70s 80s 90s aughts and the teens uh, obviously, they all have to be horror movies, and I have to watch them in October. Otherwise, what would be the point? So this podcast is dedicated to the idea that I want to spread the word about these movies. Are they good? Are they bad? Do I recommend them? Should you stay away from them? Do you feel the same way that I do about them? If you do, if you don't, either way, hit me up on Twitter or Instagram and let me know what you think about the movies, what you think about my opinions on the movies. I would love to start a discussion about these because I love horror movies, and hopefully if you're listening to this, you love horror movies too. So this week, in addition to listing off the seven movies that I watched in the last seven days, I've also got a top ten list of the the best horror scores, the best horror movie scores of all time. Not soundtracks, but scores. For the whole, so that's at the end of the whole show today. We'll get to that. Also, lots of you wrote me after last week. We talked about the top 10 most horrifying moments in children's movies, in kids' movies, movies that were marketed to kids or at least weren't rated R, P, P, you know, PG, G. What were the most horrifying moments from your childhood? And man, that triggered some people. A lot of people wrote me back about that. Can't wait to talk about that at the end of the show. But before I do that, I want to once again thank my musical contributors, the Tiki Creeps and 414 Beg. They're both on iTunes. You can get their music there. The Tiki Creeps are also at tikicreeps.com and 414Beg is on Instagram at 414, the number 414BEG. So before we get into the show proper, I do want to remind you that you should be tweeting me, texting me, sending me on Facebook, wherever you know me from. Send me your most underrated horror movies of all time. That's going to be part of our big blowout episode next week where we talk about a bunch of hidden gems movies that you may not have seen, but some people did and liked a lot. So send me that at Sir Ian Dangerous or at Skinless Wonder. So before I get into the show, again, I have watched these movies so far, in case you did not listen already or have forgotten. I've, this year I've watched Scars of Dracula from 1970, Creep from 2004, Lair of the White Worm from 1988, King of the Zombies from 1941, The Autopsy of Jane Doe from 2016, Bad Moon from 1996, Hagazusa from 2017, Overlord from 2018, Only Lovers Left Alive from 2014, Next of Kin from 1982, In the Tall Grass from 2019, Possession from 1981, 
Carnival of Souls from 1962, and Midsummer from 2019. That means I've watched movies from the 40s and before, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the aughts, and the teens, but I'm missing those 50s. I've got to get the movie from the 50s in. Maybe I got it in this week. You'll have to wait and see. Uh, I've also got one movie in German, but that means I'm missing two of my foreign language films. I'm still two behind. Maybe I got those this week. You'll find out right now. So I started out this week with a style of horror movie that I don't normally enjoy. I'm not a big fan of found footage films. And there was a period there where it was like every movie coming out was a found footage film. And it was painful. It was every single one. And I was dying. And I missed a lot of them as a result. But for day 15, I decided to take a chance and take a look at As Above, So Below from 2014. I found it on Netflix. It was written and directed by John Eric Dowdle with his brother Drew Dowdle. And again, found footage. So right off the bat, I was biased against this movie, but I tried to keep an open mind. It's, uh, it's in the vein of Tomb Raider. In fact, I think it might owe money to the Tomb Raider franchise because, again, you have a plucky British girl, very well-educated, in the main role, and she raids tombs. It's literally her job. She's got an absentee father like Lara Croft, who she's trying to live up to and follow in his footsteps. And uh, she and her team try to find the Philosopher's Stone in the catacombs under Paris. And of course, weird stuff happens, which is, it's a good premise. I mean, yes, it's a ripoff of Tomb Raider and ends up at some points being, uh, it probably owes the descent a bit of cash as well. But, uh, but I don't know, by the end... They kind of blow it by being both too ambitious and not ambitious enough. Some of the later stuff in this movie in the third act is just, frankly, I found it to be goofy as hell. I know they were intending it to be horrifying, but I really found it pretty goofy. Most of this is basically a treasure hunt. And there's some parts that have some genuine claustrophobia. And if you're scared of tight places, there's a few scenes that will mess you up, especially thanks to the found footage style of it, where it feels very immediate and it, it makes you feel like you're really there. And that is effective. But then by the final act, it goes completely off the rails. It's not really a terribly original movie either in any way except for the central, the twist, the, 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 central, the conceit of the movie. And you'll know what I'm talking about when it happens, when, they, when the movie takes a very sharp twist from being just hey, it's Tomb Raider with creepy stuff to a whole other level. Um, so for that, it's worth a look as it's, it's not bad per se. It's just, it's, it's mediocre. There's, it takes a lot of suspension of disbelief to invest in this movie, which is unfortunate because one of the strongest points about it was that it was actually shot in the Paris catacombs themselves. And that lends a lot of atmospheric integrity to it. Uh, in addition, there are some good performances here. Um, and again, the found footage aspect does really help with that closeness. And when the, when the performances are strong like this, you can believe that a bit. But, uh, but the problem is, it, again, it doesn't make sense when in some scenes the, ca- you know, the camera is seeing things that supposedly only these characters can see or hear because it's personal to them based on the plot that it's trying to sell us. And the fact that it's all caught on camera uh, and, and the camera, you know, again, found footage films, the camera's catching things and it's turning places and it's, it's, it's seeing moments uh, that, it, that a found footage camera shouldn't see. You know, if you're in a dark tomb and two of your compatriots are having a, a very sweet, tender moment, you don't get right up in their face with your camera and your light and invade their space <laughs> to catch this tender moment. That's great if you're a cinematic film but it doesn't really make sense in a found footage film, and it, it's, it's a little off-putting. So, I, yes, I found myself rolling my eyes a lot in this movie, but it might just be that I'm jaded. I did go into this biased. I admit that. Uh, Lord knows I've seen a lot worse, and I've seen worse found footage films, but this one didn't quite do it for me. If, if you don't mind that kind of thing, I have heard people that love this movie. More power to them. Wasn't my thing. I found it uh, pretty mediocre, and eye-rolling, and that was as above, so below. Day 16, 
I rented Dig Two Graves, and you can find that. I rented it. I rented it on uh, on Amazon, I believe. It's an indie horror that went a bit under the radar, but it is absolutely worth seeking out for the incredible acting and this engaging emotional story, which is more really the meat of the movie than the horrific elements to it. Uh, it's about a young girl who watches her brother drown and then later is tempted by these three creepy moonshiner guys to commit murder in exchange for bringing her brother back. But she's unaware of this dark past that these three guys share with her loving sheriff grandfather who has some very dark secrets of his own. And this movie goes between two time periods, the 1940s and the 1970s. So it's a period piece as well. And it does that effectively. And it's letting us in on these secrets as we need to know them. And going back and forth between the two time periods does work well in this movie. It is wonderfully shot and edited. For a low-budget movie like this to look this pretty is absolutely a, a miracle. And uh, it's edited wonderfully. The locations are spectacular. They, they shot on location on a lot of this, and they found some really cool stuff, uh, really cool locations to shoot it in. And as I said, the performances are incredible, particularly the main girl as she's played by Samantha Eiler. Isler? Isler? Eisler? Someone correct me on that. The real thing here is Ted Levine plays the grandpa, the sheriff. And if that name doesn't ring a bell, he's the guy that played Buffalo Bill. And he also played the dad in the Hills Have Eyes remake. He is spectacular here. Uh, and he's, for me, he was worth the price of admission. If you've only ever seen Silence of the Lambs, if you've only ever seen him in Silence of the Lambs, you may not know what a fantastic actor he is. He's more than just tucking his dick between his legs. The dude is fantastic. So this would be a great one if you've, if you've never seen him in anything else. Uh, Larry Fassenden, legend of the indie horror genre, executive produced this, which might explain the pedigree of the film, how they were able to get these actors and these shots and all the funding for it. Um, whatever small nitpicks I have with this movie, and it's largely to do with sticking the landing of the setup uh, of it, but that's, that's overshadowed by the depth of this film, its portrayal of grief and this that wonderful relationship between the grandfather and the granddaughter, between Samantha Eisler and Ted Levine. Ted Levine. I'm just having trouble with names today. Uh, it's not really a scary film. I'll, I'll say that right now. It's not really a scary film. It's more of a, of a Midwest Gothic kind of film. It's definitely got horrific stuff. It's got some spooky scenes and some, some, some creepy stuff, but it's never really like a full-blown horror movie. It just has that sense of doom wrapped all around it and uh, it's really worth a watch for as far as like an indie film goes. Really check that out. It's a hidden gem. Uh, again, it's called uh, Dig Two Graves. Day 17, I went to Shudder, and uh, I decided to do a bit of an experiment because I knew what my day 18 was going to be. I had that planned, and so I decided to do a little double feature, if you will. I wanted to do lighthouse movies, and so for day 17, I did Cold Skin, which I had been, I'd been meaning to see since I saw it come out in 2017. Uh, the director is Ze uh, Xavier Gens, who also directed Frontiers, which was a movie I watched last year, which is brutal French New Extreme. Uh, it's based on a book of the same name, based on a book called Cold Skin, but it was a box office flop, and now it's a Shutter exclusive. And it's shockingly well-made, given how low the budget is. I'm, I was actually really surprised at how good this movie looks and plays and reads given like he had a really small budget for this it's uh it's about a man a younger man who takes a scientific job on a desolate island which is populated by one weird misanthropic old lighthouse keeper and this young guy quickly discovers that these strange humanoid fish monsters attack the island at night and it doesn't that's not a spoiler that happens in the first 15 minutes and then the rest of the movie is about how these two guys are going to survive this relentless assault. Uh, it's, it doesn't quite, <laughs> that sounds like a great premise, and I'm going to admit it doesn't quite pay that off. I think largely due to the fact that he only had so much in the budget, but man, is he able to trick you into thinking that a lot more is happening than you're actually seeing. And there's a lot that he gets away with here. And there's a creature that is friendly to the main characters who has a lot of screen time, 
And the practical effects and the physical work done to realize her are spectacular. Uh, it's the lead character who's played by David Oakes. He bears a passing resemblance to Mad Mikkel- Mads Mikkelsen, which right there is a that's an accolade. Uh, there's not much to his character, but he himself, the actor, has such an innate presence to him that it was it was almost like he was cast simply because he feels like a smart, decent person. And you can read so much into his character just because of how he naturally acts and how he interacts with um, their fishy companion, how he acts with the lighthouse keeper, who is played by Ray Stevenson, the Punisher, and he's unrecognizable because he's got this full beard and this huge head of hair. And he plays this really fascinating, multi-layered character. He's a beast. He's this horrible human being, but at the same time, there's scenes they give him where he has such depth and sadness to him and you get this tragic backstory to him and they do a great job of playing that where you're never really sure if you hate him or if you feel sorry for him uh if i had to nitpick i would say that gens has some questionable control over his light the sun appears to be going down in some scenes it's the full full noon in the next scene which takes place right afterwards um, but it is a really remarkable shift in tone for Gens from Frontiers. He's much more philosophical and almost, almost peaceful here in some scenes. It's less about the brutality of the body like in Frontiers, where it's just about tearing things apart. And it's more about internal emotional turmoil and isolation and the thin veil of civilization, how, how easy it is for that to break down. Um, don't want to get into spoilers, but there is a recent Oscar-winning movie that has a lot in common with this movie. Uh, but that being said, unlike that movie, I don't think Gens quite earns his plot as much here as he could have. Uh, the, the script and the plot is a, a rather major flaw, I think, with this movie. They went to some quest- questionable places uh, in this movie in terms of plot twists. And then they didn't, in other scenes, they didn't go far enough. In other things, they didn't really push it enough to earn their outcomes. It's it really is an interesting, strong movie, and it's, it's far from perfect, but it really should have gotten more recognition than it got, and it's worth a look if you go into it with tempered expectations. Don't expect a masterpiece. Just expect a solid movie with some entertaining stuff in it uh, and some, some pretty good practical effects, some questionable digital effects, and some very decent ones, so it, but it's definitely worth a look. If it's on Shutter and you have a subscription, no harm, no foul. Check out Cold Skin. I think it's worth a look. Day 18, and again, this is part two of my, uh, my lighthouse twofer, was The Lighthouse. I went out to the theater and checked out the new movie, The Lighthouse, from Robert Eggers and his brother, who did The Witch, the v v however you want to call it, The Witch, which is one of my favorite movies of the last 20 years. So I was very excited to see this one. Um, it's the same premise, basically, as cold skin it's an old guy and a young guy stranded in a lighthouse but man it goes to wildly different places <laughs> this is um if i had to pick adjectives to describe this movie it'd be striking it's confounding it's intense it's hilarious uh it's a movie about madness guilt and frankly other also how nothing is worse than other people. I think that uh, Sartre's No Exit is a distant cousin of this movie. People trapped in a space going crazy because the other person is driving them nuts. Uh, It stars Robert Pattinson. Yes, that Robert Pattinson. You know, Batman. Just kidding. The guy from Twilight. Uh, He's excellent. He's amazing in this. Uh, And Willem Dafoe, the legend himself. He's somehow, somehow Willem Dafoe in this movie makes the narrator from SpongeBob SquarePants into a vivid, amazing character. I'll say it again. He sounds like the narrator from SpongeBob SquarePants. Every, every cliche you've ever heard of the old man of the sea, he does that and makes it, you can't tear your eyes off of him. And there are two lighthouse keepers who have to spend a month together on this desolate rock. And suffice it to say, things go wrong and then they go bat shit insane and this movie i i was i was blown away it's brilliant enough to be it's lit you could take it as literal allegorical metaphorical phantasmagorical all at once 
and I still felt satisfied at the end. I also was not prepared for how freaking funny this movie was. It's while at the same time being disgusting. Sometimes in the same scene, I people were laughing out loud all through this movie. Sometimes out of discomfort, sometimes because they genuinely pulled off a funny punchline in the movie, sometimes because the characters are just so weird. There's so many reasons to laugh at this movie, and then two seconds later, you're horrified at what you're seeing. Uh, it's, it's captivating, and it's somehow, there's moments where it's beautiful as well. Um, the beauty, if you can find it, comes from the, this stark, intense black and white filming. They definitely went full art house with this. It's, uh, it's shot on an old 1920s uh, 1.19 to 1 ratio, so it's like a square and they used 100-year-old camera lenses to get that right kind of fuzzy like light in the, in the camera. And a lot of times it feels like an old film, uh, even though the actual lighting design and the acting are modern, uh, and the sound obviously is very modern. But uh, it does, it, you, you'll get tricked a lot. There's a few scenes where it, it could have, you could have pulled this right out of a, a 30s or 40s film, or even 50s. Uh, they did actually build the set in Nova Scotia and they filmed 100% on site and it shows everyone looks miserable. The weather looks miserable. At one point, Willem Dafoe is having dirt chucked in his face while lying in inch deep freezing cold water and he's reciting this whole monologue and he looks as miserable as apparently he actually was on set that day and it all works. Uh, They actually sourced this movie from period writings of the time and logs and interviews so the dialogue and events are very firmly grounded in the period late 1800s uh obviously if you've seen the witch you know that eggers is very much about the details and he went all out on this one as well um i gotta talk again about willem dafoe he's got a couple of absolutely towering thunderous insane speeches including including one of the best long-form curse-outs I've ever heard, and, and also that soliloquy I just mentioned while he's having dirt actually thrown in his mouth. Absolutely unbelievable performance. How he was able to maintain the intensity of these lines, it, it's why he's a legend. And, you know, love thrown out here to Patterson as well, who goes completely off the deep end, and he goes for it. He, they, they got him to really go. And if you are still wondering about him as an actor, go watch this and you'll stop wondering. He has a couple of different breakdown moments that totally redeemed him for me for Twilight. So he's back in my good books now. I don't know if he's Batman, but he's back in my good books. Uh, From the very like spare opening of this to a very Promethean finish, and I'll leave that hanging, it's just another just big heaping helping of cinema from Mr. Eggers, and I will be quoting this movie for years, but I will warn you, it is not for everybody. It's not a point A to point B ride. The second half of this movie goes completely off the rails. Uh, very much an art house film, and a, a bit obtuse at times. And I, I'm not going to tell you that it's got a ending that's going to satisfy everybody. It's more, if you like David Lynch movies, You'll probably dig this a lot. If you can't stand David Lynch movies, don't see it. <laughs> you're not gonna. You're not. I just tell you right now, you're not gonna dig it. But I thought the lighthouse was brilliant, and I can't wait to watch it again. Day nineteen, I have been watching so many heavy movies and so many big, like thoughtful head movies that I had to cleanse my palate and go back to 1988 and watch Slugs on Amazon Prime. That's right. I watched a movie called Slugs, and I don't regret it at all. It's directed by uh, Juan Piquer Simon. It's based on the book by Sean Hudson. I can't believe this movie was a book. It is so, so exquisitely awful that it is hard to believe they didn't actually intend to make a movie this bad. There is, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the plot and just the plot alone should give you an idea. There's this heroic square-jawed health inspector You heard that right. And he discovers that his town, his small rural American town, is under siege. Siege, I tell you, from a mutated carnivorous form of black slug. 
and he goes on a crusade to wipe them out before they kill everyone and their dogs. Uh, yes, slugs are trapping a small town. Holy, holy shit, this is bad. Uh, there's, I mean, it's, there's equipment in shots. There's, there's a scene where uh, action music is playing, like intense action music is playing, as a couple races down a school hallway to talk to the only scientist they know, who, of course has a British accent in rural America. Uh, also, he's a high school science teacher, and he's a high school science teacher who has the ability to casually manufacture large quantities of lithium-based arsenic on a moment's notice. And they're playing action movie music for this because they're like, we have to talk to this scientist about the slugs. It's, I, I jaw was on the floor for this. There, there's, a, there's a scene where a guy puts his hand all the way into a garden glove. And he doesn't somehow feel a six-inch slug in there. And then 10 seconds later, he screams, It's biting me! When it bites him. And then he cuts off his hand to fix the problem. I wish I was kidding about this. Uh, to, to, to catalog all of his movie sins would take forever. Luckily... Once the first major kill scene happens, all is forgiven because it is so ridiculous and so insane and so amazing and so, so dumb all at the same time that it is wildly, wildly entertaining. The acting is a hoot. It's so bad. The dub on some people is just absolutely hilarious. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if they intended this to be sub-cinemax levels of melodramatic, but uh, nothing says intensity like a guy racing home because slugs are coming out of his faucet and his wife needs him to clonk them lightly with a frying pan. Um, it, okay, it is actually quite gross. There is some just mind-blowing gore, some serious body horror in this, but along with the utter campiness, that makes this incredibly entertaining if you're looking for a good, bad movie to freak people out with while you're all just laughing at the absurdity of it all. And, you know, I'm not going to advocate drinking, but if you do feel like drinking during this movie, here's a drinking game. Every time someone in this movie drinks or takes a drink or mentions drinking, take a sip. Not a shot, because if you took shots every time someone drank or mentioned drinking in this movie, you'd die faster than you could say alcohol poisoning. This, yeah, this is, a, this is definitely a party game movie. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun, dumb, horrible, horrible movie. Uh, I, it's, what's crazy is they haven't done this movie for Rift Tracks or MST3K yet, and I can only imagine it's because of the nudity and the gore. It's the only thing I can imagine. But this movie is just begging to be riffed on. So have fun with slugs. Again, <laughs> you can get it on Amazon Prime, and it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, I went back modern with the next movie, and I've been meaning to see this since it came out earlier this year, and that was the remake of Pet Cemetery. and I got this on Blu-ray, although it is uh, out for rent right now, directed by the pair of Kevin Kirsch and Dennis Widmeyer. Uh, they had some big shoes to fill here, because the pedigree of the 1989 original film is, is pretty big. Uh, that was for the longest time I felt the scariest Stephen King movie ever made. And for them to come in and try to make to my, try to make a remake of that when there's so much about that movie that's just iconic. Uh, I thought they had a big, big hill to climb. Uh, it's cool that there's a lot of new Stephen King stuff coming out these days. It's, it's, so in that sense, it's not terribly surprising that they take another shot at this because Stephen King is very marketable right now. People forgot the era where he couldn't his movies were terrible. You, you couldn't have a good Stephen King movie. It was like Carrie, kind of Christine. The Shining wasn't even really his story, so you couldn't really call it a Stephen King movie. Like There was a time where you know, it was all like Tommyknockers, and sometimes they come back, and uh, Sleepwalkers, and it was, you know, they're making nothing but crap Stephen King movies. Now we're getting a lot of really good ones. So it makes sense they would try to do some other Stephen King movies uh, including this one, and try to update it. Because the first one was 1989. It's a long time ago now. Uh, if you don't know what, uh, what Pet Cemetery is about, 
then what is wrong with you? Why are you here? But no, seriously, if, uh, it's about a family that moves in near a cursed Indian burial ground. Remember those? Which reanimates anything that's buried in it, which of course means the burial ground gets used and hilarity ensues. Uh, yeah, it's... So, as far as this remake goes, I'm just going to come right out and say it right now. It wasn't good. Didn't like it. Uh, and here is why. So much of the dialogue is on the nose and heavy-handed, where the original let you try to interpret some of the past and the history of the characters. This one just comes out and straight up says it, especially the sister subplot, the sister of the wife, which was just way overdone in this. It was one of the scariest things about the original, but it was also subtle, and it was only for a scene or two, and this is pervasive for the entire movie, and it becomes obtrusive. And again, the fact that they're so on the nose with it, where you even have a main character saying, you still have never gotten over the death of your sister. You feel you called it. You caused it. It was, which, come on, man. (laughs) Show, not tell. Uh, Also, while some of the stuff is in the book, like the dream sequences and the the kid who was hit in the accident coming back, in this one, they don't translate well to this film. And and frankly, it doesn't really need them. If you're going to cut stuff out of the book, that's one you could cut out of the book because you don't really need it. it. Some of the dream logic in Stephen King's books doesn't translate well to film, and you can make a solid film without it. Uh, also, the casting. Jason Clark is good sometimes, but a lot of times he comes off as being very flat and unrelatable. I think he does tragedy well, but, uh, but he's, just, he's just kind of there. He's very vanilla. He's very plain. And that again, happens here, where there's nothing really about him that captivates you. And John Lithgow is in this, and I have a tons of love for John Lithgow. He's an absolute acting genius. But, and he's always good, but here, again, his character is just lacking something. And I don't know if it's the, that awesome rural accent that Fred Gwynn had playing this role in the original. Also, it's Fred Gwynn. Uh, so right there, that's big shoes to fill, but I thought Lithgow would be able to fill them. And he's just, he doesn't feel the way that Fred Gwynn did. He doesn't have that sense of the, the neighbor who's got a bit of darkness in his past, but is genuinely a good guy. He doesn't feel like he's from the area. They did a good job with his makeup and he, it just doesn't quite click. Uh, I have to say that Amy Seamitz is the heart of the film though. She plays the wife. She, there's a, it's a thankless role. And it's half written, but I'll be damned if she doesn't really invest in it. And you, when she gets emotional in this movie, you really feel it. She felt like she was connected. I loved her in this, although they didn't give her a ton to really work with here. Um, The differences between this movie and the book. Unlike the book, this family has an extra kid, a daughter. In the original, it was just the young kid, Gage. And I really don't know why we needed that. I'm trying to look at the story as presented on its own merits, and it's just extraneous to have her character there other than just to have a twist to the original third act to like throw you a curveball. But, but she makes the ending utterly ridiculous, and it doesn't have the, the nihilistic tragedy of the original. In fact, even though the original kind of catches hell for its closing moments, I gotta say... This movie one's, one-ups it in the shit-ending category by a healthy margin because it's nihilistic, but it doesn't have the tragedy or the emotional heft of the original one. It doesn't show that descent into madness and grief. This one is just a series of unfortunate events, and there's, all, like, there's a definitive bad guy in this one, which is just dumb. They, as far as the daughter goes, they do do some really genuinely creepy stuff with her. Some of the creepiest stuff in the movie is with the daughter, and that's great. But I think it proves how unnecessary this remake was if, if you have to alter the third act so much in order to make it feel fresh. And also, her dialogue gives so much away about the secrets of the film by the end, even if her speaking does end to the, lend to the creepiness of the third act, it's just it's too much. It, it gives you too much information. I mean, this movie even has, there's a shot callback. There's a, there's a moment where they do a, a straight callback to the original movie. 
and it's almost as though to trick you to think that they're going to redo the exact same scene. And it's, it's an iconic scene. Uh, it's a pivotal scene. It was burned in the mind of anyone who watched the first movie. And they do this almost as though they were trying to misdirect you from what they were doing in this film. They, the, the end result is the same, but they, they direct it as though they know you've watched the original. And even if you haven't, then they might do it. It might be a little bit of a get you, but it's just so unnecessary. It feels like they know their audience has seen the original and they're trying to trick that audience. But again, then what's the point of the remake if you're going to try to change things from the original to swerve that audience? I don't know. I've, I, I, it feels like insecurity of their own take. I've heard criticisms of the pacing that it's too slow. I didn't have a problem with that as it's supposed to feel like a slow burn into an inevitable conclusion. The, the relentless inevitability and the awareness of what's coming while unsure of how it will be resolved is part of the horror of this story. It's predictable, but that predictability lends itself to the horrible feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when they show the trucks whizzing by or when the cat returns or the, the look in John Lithgow's eye when he looks at the deadfall of trees in the pet cemetery. Uh, it's... That's the point of the movie is it's like a train coming for you. And that was the point of the original as well, is you know things are going to get worse. You just don't know how much worse they're going to get. So the pacing was not a problem. It was everything else. Regardless, I know I just completely buried it, pardon the pun, but it's worth a watch if you're curious or if you've never seen the original. It's not the worst movie ever, but like As Above, So Below, it's painfully mediocre and it doesn't in any way hold up to the original which still has a viciousness to it that you that is just nowhere present in this movie this movie feels so much softer and it 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 lets you go so much more it's very underwhelming it was unnecessary and i'm very sad to hear that because i I really did have hopes uh for this movie i wanted them to make a, a really just mean modern pet cemetery and this is not that movie. I did like a couple of the, the Stephen King Easter eggs they threw in there. Those were cute. There was, a cute. there was a Cujo reference. People are talking about the big St. Bernard that got rabies and bit four people at the birthday party. There's a, there's a road sign that says Dairy 20 Miles. That's cute. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, yeah, was not a fan of the remake of Pet Cemetery. Then I had Day 21. And uh, brace yourselves, because i got a lot to say about this one. I finally checked out Suspiria from 2018, from last year. It is now streaming on Amazon Prime. It's streaming in 4K, if you got it. And I recommend it in 4K. Uh, It's directed by Luca Guad... Uh, I'm going to screw up the name again. Guadagnino. Guadagnino. His name's Luca. All right. Uh, And it is... If you've read the critiques of this movie, you've probably heard a lot of different things because it was about as divisive a movie as I can remember in recent memory. It's not nearly as scattershot or pretentious as some critics would lead you to believe. It has a slower, very deliberate pace. It's two and a half hours. But for me, it just it rarely felt fatuous or self-indulgent. I felt like everything made sense to have it be in there. Uh, it felt like it was an inevitable progression, kind of like the, the pacing in, in Pet Cemetery, where it made sense to go at that pace. I didn't mind it. For some people, though, I can see how it would be a little bit slow. Um, but I will say this. When the end does come, this movie unleashes like a goddamn hurricane. It goes balls to the wall by the end. So I, <laughs> it, it might be worth it for you. Gorehounds, if you want to stick around to the end, but uh, I didn't have any problem with the pacing. Uh, it's about a young Ohio girl who comes to Berlin in 1977, which, interestingly enough, is the year the first movie was made in Italy, uh, even though it was supposed to take place in Germany as well. But in 1977, that was the German autumn. And uh, I'll get into that in a second, but she's there to try out for a dance company. Unbeknownst to her, the company is run by an ancient coven of witches who use their young students as vessels and tools of power. So similar on the, on the surface to the original Suspiria, the classic, uh, but that is about where the similarities end. For one thing, the German autumn plays a lot of part in this. Again, I'll get to that in a second. I want to get back into the critiques of this movie because it really is funny 
how divisive this was amongst critics. Some utterly despised it, going so far as to say it was a complete misfire. Um, and I, I admit, I was put off by that reaction, the divisive reaction to this, and I went so far as to actually avoid this movie during my last marathon because I, I didn't want to see a bad movie. And I deeply regret that now as I utterly fell in love with this movie. Despite some of its minor flaws, um, I feel it is superior to the original in every single way except for the art design and that the first film's famous color palette, uh, which, you know, that's probably the most iconic thing about the original Suspiria. Um, it kind of it wrote the book. It closed the book on that kind of technicolor, primary color uh, style of shooting. So I, I, I understand why they didn't try to go for that again. Uh, one major criticism that has been leveled at this film is its themes and its meaning being too muddled. And while the story is far more straightforward than I was led to believe, the themes can be a little bit less easy to interpret. But honestly, I've watched movies like The Lighthouse and Possession this year. And compared to those, this is way more cut and dry. This was way easier to pick apart. And I, I, I pulled a lot more out of this. Obviously, the most, uh, the most obvious metaphors I got are about mothers and their control and influence, both good and bad. The writer of this movie, uh, David Kajanix, I screwed up another name, Kajanix, what is with everyone's names today, has explicitly said that he felt in his research that he wanted to showcase the kind of witch that psychoanalytically speaking represented the, quote, terrible mother, kind of like, you know, in some religions, like the goddess Kali uh, in some religions. Like, he, that was the kind of witch he wanted to portray. So mothers and terrible mothers were a particular interest of his. Um, so that's obviously a major theme. That one's on the surface. I didn't feel like that one, that one was as deep as some of the themes that got into. It was there, but there was other things that I thought were more interesting. Female power, for example, how it is sought and taken and struggled for. It's also an easy find. Uh, given the, the tensions that exist within the coven's hierarchy and the collectivist setup that they have. Although... Even in that state, there's like a first among equals, which creates a very feminine struggle for dominance in how the leader's established, and then it's ultim- and ultimately challenged that leader. Um, but it's, it's hard to think of this as too much of a feminist movie, uh, as this is a story told by men, the writer and director are men, and I would charge that this movie is still discussing these feminist themes through the lens of a male mind. So while they're there, that's, again, it's not really... Uh, a theme that I would say is uh, as as large as I, I would want it to be. Um, but other ones that are less easy to see and more salient are like the metaphors for power, uh, how it's abused, how it's fought against, and how those who are subjugated by the old guard resist and fight for their future. And in this instance, any critic who felt that the placement of this film in Germany during the German autumn, during the rebellious months of the German autumn, and also, conveniently, 32 years after the end of World War II, with the scars of that conflict and Germany's part in it still open and sore, sometimes literally in this movie, um, if they thought that was arbitrary or unnecessary, they need to read their history more and watch this movie again. Uh, rebellion in this movie. Rebellion. The beating heart of the youth flailing against the repressive blanket of the old regime and the, the tainted ones who maintain their power uh, both in the coven and in the government, despite being involved in some of the most evil acts in modern history, it's a perfect backdrop for this quiet, sinister web weaving in, uh, of the dance coven. The, the government is a backdrop for the coven itself and their quest to usurp the youth that they pretend to parent and care for. It's a mirror image. Of, they're mirroring each other. And shame and guilt are explicitly mentioned as well and how it's passed on to the next generation and how that next generation deals with those feelings is another concept attacked in this film. The individual, the society around that individual, natural order, reasserting itself all come into play and they're seen through a realistic and at the same time also supernatural lens. The final shot of the movie of this heart engraved in the wall of a dacha in East Germany with the initials of two lovers that were torn apart by the Holocaust inside it still being present in modern times. The movie takes place in 77, but the final shot shows us someone talking on a cell phone next to this. So we know it's modern times. And the fact that that is still there, it speaks to the scar, the theme of the scars of history. And I'm 
really not sure how it would be capable, be possible to overlook this particular glaring allegory. And again, all of this, all of this, all of these themes, while it still also functions as a story about a woman, a girl coming into her power as a woman, whether she takes it, is given it, or is born with it are all possibilities that are explored, uh, culminating in the climactic scene of this movie, which I mentioned earlier, the ending, which is explosively gory. And at the same time, it's set to this utterly heartbreakingly beautiful song by Tom York of Radiohead. And he did the entire score using the concept of late 70s kraut rock, uh, Blade Runner, Vangelis' electronic style, and um, the idea that he was weaving spells with his music. It's a beautiful score. Beautiful score. Uh, and I admit, I got a little bit emotional during this sequence for some reason, maybe due to while this, you know, this beautiful song plays, the image of someone sensually ripping open their own chest to expose their screaming, sighing, literally bleeding heart. And no, the fact that the wound that they made is in, in this process is literally looks like female genitalia was not lost on me either. Uh, so very powerful scene. And finally, casting the utterly amazing Tilda Swinton as three characters is a brilliantly subtle strategy, given the recurrence of the idea of Trinity, as is commonly found in female iconography and also witchcraft, esoteric symbology, and also duality in this movie as shown through the repeated uses of mirrors and doubling. Uh, Swinton's three characters, they oppose each other, but they also create a three-way pull of intention for the lead girl's character, there's salvation, there's selfishness, and there's destruction. There's also, I gotta, actually, I gotta give major kudos to all the actors in this movie who do incredible work, especially Dakota Johnson as the, as the lead character and Mia Goth as her friend. Absolutely unbelievable. Um, I, I really do have to say, like, they did a fantastic job with this. There's other stuff I wanna talk about this movie too in terms of the symbolism that was taken from Suspiria de Profundis by Thomas de Quincey, who's an English essayist. He talked about the idea that there are three fates, three muses, uh, three furies, and also three sorrows. And one of the sorrows is uh, Suspiriorum, or, or the, the mother of sighs, uh, which is, as it relates to this movie, is a fascinating contrast. And I want to get into that, but really don't have time. Uh, and all of this is without really discussing how it relates to the original, which is, which is so iconic that I can't help think that it clouded many people's minds when they looked at this film. The drab cinematography of this remake functions well to separate the two visually, but unfortunately it makes the old one feel more engaging and exciting. The, the bright colors, it, it draws you in more, uh, whereas this one, it does mean you have to work harder to engage. Um, there's also major plot differences that separate them. Uh, but the two films just play completely differently in terms of tone and intention. And ultimately, I feel like enough is different that I almost think of the two as completely different films, like Romero's Dawn of the Dead and Snyder's 2004 remake. Uh, unlike those two, however, I think that while I hold respect and nostalgia for the original, I vastly prefer the remake of Suspiria. Uh, it, it left me deeply saddened, thoughtful, excited, inspired. I, uh, I feel like I could talk about this film for days. The, the, the beautiful, stark expressionist dancing, the great effects, including a scene where a woman is crushed and broken by a spell. Actually, I just found out she's a contortionist. And while she's being crushed and twisted around, a lot of the, this horrific limb work and like dislocating of her limbs, she actually did it herself. It was for real. Uh, there's small details like the camera moving in the way that they would have moved the camera in the seventies, like quick zoom ins and, you know, little jittery pans. Let's just say I can't wait to watch it again. And it's my favorite film I've seen so far this year. Um, I, again, you know, full disclosure, it was very divisive. It's not for everyone. I know people who've seen it and didn't like it. Uh, so go in with an open mind, go in with that in mind I know I just spewed a whole lot of information at you about this movie, <laughs> but it made me think a lot. It, it left a lot in my mind. I'm still pondering it. And I hope that when you see the new Suspiria, you're pondering it as well. I think it was an absolutely mind-blowingly fantastic movie. So that is it for weeks one to three. 
I got a movie in from the 60s, but I still have to find at least one movie from the 50s to watch before the end. Uh, I'm slacking. I'll admit it. I'm slacking on the foreign languages. I still have two to go. Yikes. Luckily, I've got, uh, I've got 10 days left, so I think I've got time to get this all in. Uh, and then we'll have our monster blowout final episode, which is going to be a lot of fun. And we'll be talking about uh, underrated horror movies on that one. So make sure to tweet me, Sir Ian Dangerous or Skinless Wonder. Make sure to tweet me your favorite underrated horror movies. Uh, I've also got to talk about how last week I mentioned my top 10 horrifying moments in movies meant for kids or at least non-R-rated movies. And I asked you guys, what kids movie messed you up as children? And the results are in overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, like the number one scene that messed up everyone who responded. And it may just be the age group of people that wrote in, but it seemed like it was a lot of different age groups. The death of Artax in Neverending Story was the most traumatic thing any of you had seen as kids, which is crazy. Remember when it used to be old Yeller and Bambi's mom? Those were the go-to. Uh, those both got mentioned as well, but Artax had just such a huge percentage. It took up, it just blew everything else out of the water in terms of mentions. Uh, most of the movies on my top 10 list got mentioned. Thank you for everyone who mentioned those. Uh, I agree. Those were, uh, those were some freaky movies. But uh, there, I was surprised at how many movies got mentioned that I didn't mention, I didn't even think of. Um, I did mention The Dark Crystal in my top 10 list, but Raffaella wrote in and said that she felt the most terrifying thing wasn't the Skeksis or the scene when Kira gets her soul sucked out. It was the sky, the creepy two-sun sky. Even though it didn't mess her up in Star Wars, for some reason the Dark Crystal created an environment of fear such that the suns were what messed her up the most about that movie. Uh, Josh got freaked out by the fireman clown and Brave Little Toaster. Alabaster Jones wrote me and said that he hated the child catcher and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Mitchell wasn't a fan of Tim Curry's Smog Monster and Fern Gully. Oh, come on. He sings so well, though. Uh, but he also didn't like All Dogs Go to Heaven's Hell scene. But who would? It's a dog. He's in hell. Dear God, how'd they show that to kids? Lindsay and Barbara thought the tunnel in Willy Wonka was scary, particularly the bugs or the snake. And that also got some other mentions from Deidre and Deuce, who just got freaked out by the whole movie. Uh, Dean... I think grew up in New York because he didn't like Macaulay Culkin walking home alone through Central Park in Home Alone 2. Uh, Colleen and Paul reminded me of the spiders in Something Wicked This Way Comes. Not a lot of people saw Something Wicked This Way Comes, but damn, that was really good. And yes, goddamn scary. Uh, Tiffany and Sean were not pleased with the heffalumps in Winnie the Pooh. Chad and Tara brought up the Banshee from Darby O'Gill and the Little People. That's a great one. Not enough people have seen that movie either. Uh, Mayron mentioned the OG Little Mermaid. Not the Disney one, but like the old school dubbed anime style one where she dies at the end like she does in the original Hans Christian Andersen story. Uh, yeah, that's why they changed the ending for Disney. As messed up as some Disney movies are, even they couldn't handle that original ending. Uh, Monica, Tauhid, and Lindsay agreed that the monkeys from Wizard of Oz were the scariest damn thing as a kid. And actually, ironically, my mom thought the same thing. Uh, she, she weighed in and said the monkeys from Wizard of Oz. That's, a, that's another classic, horrific moment. Uh, speaking of witches, Stephanie thought the witches from the witches, based on the Royal Doll book, as they, when they revealed themselves, they take off their wigs and everything. She thought that was the scariest thing as a kid. And yeah, that's a, that's a great late era one. Uh, Bridget gave me the Night on Bald Mountain sequence from Fantasia. Uh, Disney's showing up again. Uh, Gary, Gary rightly adds... Babe, Pig in the City. I can't believe that movie got made. You let George Miller direct a kid's movie. Uh, I mean, yeah, he did Happy Feet too, but, as, but Babe, Pig in the City is... That's, that's, that movie's crazy. I can't, that's one of those kids' movies I can't believe got made. Uh, Tara was horrified by the government task force in E.T. That's a, a classic as well. And finally, Jacob rounds us out with the flesh-eating scarab bugs in The Mummy. The Brandon Fraser and the one with Brandon Fraser and like where Rachel Weiss had like half of her normal eyebrows. Uh, he also mentioned another Disney movie, The Hanging Death of the Evil Hunter in Tarzan, and The Basilisk, the giant snake from Harry Potter Two, I believe. Which I'm really surprised wasn't on here more. I'm surprised more people didn't bring up Harry Potter. Uh, the you know the guy with the face in the back of his head. Like enough of you watch Harry Potter as kids. Come on. So thank you to everyone for contributing. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's great to hear everyone's childhood traumas laid out, <laughs> but uh, we're all, we all we all empathize with each other now. Uh, 
So for next week, let me know your most underrated horror movies, and I'll read those off next week. I think we're going to get a lot of really cool ones and maybe some, even some more suggestions of things to watch. So finally on today's episode, I wanted to give my top 10 horror scores of all time. Now, we're not talking just the main theme. You know, everyone knows the Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween and... Uh, I suppose I could do a list of just those. Those would be, that'd be kind of fun too. But I'm talking the whole score. Uh, that making the movie terrifying from the open to the close, just you can put it on and it's a beautiful set of music. It's not just the one moment when the killer shows up. Now, again, I'm not discounting films where the theme is iconic as that would be very limiting. But for example, Friday the 13th has a very iconic theme or, or you know, just the kill, kill, mama. Uh, but as a whole score, it's very, it's pretty average. So I'm also, I, you know, I'm just going to, just for <laughs> the sake of argument, I'm taking the original Halloween out of contention. Before you scream and yell and tell me what am I doing, that is just above and beyond anything else. I'm putting on a pedestal above everything else. The original Halloween score is just above and beyond. It, it, is, a, it is greater than everything. All right, we'll say that right now. It's just, it's too big to have in this top 10 list. And I'm also not doing any like purely pop music soundtracks or like, you know, collections of pop music songs. Because if I did that list, every single one, one through 10 would be Return of the Living Dead. So here we go. Before we get into the top 10, honorable mentions. I know I already said Halloween couldn't be on here, but I'm going to throw Halloween 3 in the honorable mentions because they stay away from the theme of the original and yet still craft an absolutely classic 80s synth theme score uh, for this movie. And I think it's one of my favorite overall scores for the entire Halloween series. Really worth a look. The Fog, again, John Carpenter. I'm just, John Carpenter trilogy. It's a thing as well. I know Ennio Morricone did that score with him, but uh, those three all have just absolutely amazing scores front to back. Uh, Halloween, thing, Halloween 3, The Fog, and The Thing. Uh, also, honorable mention, The Keep, a movie that way too few people have seen, probably because it's hard to get your hands on. Michael Mann has disavowed it, and it's, they never made a Blu-ray of it. The Keep's Tangerine Dream soundtrack, however, is absolutely amazing. So that's one you can check out fairly easily. Uh, and finally, Videodrome, Howard Shore, way back in the day when he did Videodrome, and that's just a head trip. He was trying a whole bunch of experimental techniques with sampling on that way ahead of its time. Really cool soundtrack. But it didn't make the top 10, which are, starting at number 10, Wicker Man by Paul Giovanni and Magnet. Uh, if you just listen to it, I know it doesn't sound like a horror film on the album, but if you see it in context, it's, it is truly terrifying. It sounds like a bunch of sweet little old-style folk music, and then you watch it in the context of the film, and it all becomes really chilling. Uh, I will also say that the standout track is Willow's Song, which you probably heard covered by Sneaker Pimps or Isabel Campbell. Absolutely beautiful song, and I get it stuck in my head all the time. But yeah, the Wicker Man soundtrack is freaking amazing, and I, I can just put that on and listen to the whole thing at any given time. Uh, number nine is Hellraiser by Christopher Young, who stepped in when the original soundtrack by Coil, one of my favorite old British electronic bands, uh, they did a score for Hellraiser, and it was deemed to be too extreme or just too out there by the producers. So they went and got Christopher Young to do another great score. And frankly, you could throw either the Coil one or the, uh, the Christopher Young one on, and I would be totally satisfied because they're both fantastic. So Hellraiser has to be on this list. It Follows is number eight. Modern, disaster piece. Uh, disaster piece did, I think, my favorite modern horror soundtrack. It sounds, it, it looks backwards with the electronic synth sound to it, but it's also timeless. It's just like the film where it's just, it feels like something that could have been made in the 80s, but it just feels too modern or postmodern to be stuck in that one time period. Kind of like the setting of the movie. It's a brilliant score. And another one I can just put on and leave on, and it's, it's stunning. I, I love the It Follows soundtrack. Number seven, Silent Hill by Jeff Dana and Akira Yamaoka. The great thing about this is if you've ever played the video game, um, to get the guy who composed the soundtrack for the video game, Akira Yamaoka, to help make the movie score, 
uh, you can almost feel the two disparate parts fighting against each other. And it's awesome because it, it keeps the ambiance of the game in the movie. And one of the things that was so iconic about the video game was the soundtrack, this haunting, sad score to this horrific game. And the same thing happens in the movie. It's the same feeling in the movie. They captured it perfectly. It's one of the reasons why, in my opinion, this is one of the greatest video game adaptations of all time, is that they absolutely nail, knock out of the park, the score. Silent Hill is on my list for sure. Number six, you knew it had to be here somewhere, The Shining. And this one kind of breaks what uh, my, kind of breaks the category here because I said you couldn't have a whole bunch of songs from different places, but... This one you can. It's it was actually they did use stuff for the from the original soundtrack uh, by Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkin, who also did Clockwork Orange with Stanley Kubrick. But uh, Stanley Kubrick and music editor Gold, Gordon Stainforth, they got music from all over the place. Whether it's uh, Georgi Ligeti, Kurzostov Penderecki, Bella Bartok, and it all made like the sound, the music in that movie, absolutely creeps you the hell out from the second that the lights go up. Uh, it is absolutely fantastic. The Shining has to in this list. You know it does. We all know it does. The Shining came in at number six. Number five, Suspiria by Goblin. Uh, I know I just watched the new one, and I have to now consider if the new soundtrack is going to go on this list, but I haven't listened to it enough. But the original by Goblin is just one of my favorites of all time. That, uh, the main theme as well, the main song, which has been covered and used in other movies and sampled, uh, is obviously worth it, but then the rest of the whole soundtrack is just as good. Uh, I play the, that's it's my sound of Halloween. It's one of my sounds of Halloween is to put on the Suspiria soundtrack. That's how I know it's time. It's one of the things that made the original Suspiria so classic is how freaking awesome it was. Uh, the the soundtrack was, and Goblin is so underrated as a band, and they're still touring. If you want to go see Goblin. Hopefully they'll play, but they'll probably play this. It's one of their big hits. So check out Suspiria by Goblin. Number four, Rosemary's Baby by uh, Krzysztof Komeda. Uh, you all know the main theme to this one. I didn't know this until recently, though, that Mia Farrow actually sings those la-la-las. And I, yeah, I wish I could play some of these soundtracks here, but, uh, you know, I'm very poor and copyright is very expensive. So... If you can't hear it in your head right now, that, uh, that Rosemary's Baby soundtrack, the great thing about it is, again, here's one where the theme is very iconic, but the rest of the soundtrack perfectly complements the movie. And it's, really, it's, like, it's quiet, it's jazzy, and then it's just enough creepy in the right place. It's unsettling. It gets under your skin. Uh, it is, again, it feels like the era the movie took place in, but it also feels timeless. It's an absolutely outstanding soundtrack. Number three, this is one of my favorites, obviously, Candyman by Philip Glass. This is another one where if we're talking about soundtracks, I immediately bring this up because it's another one that I feel is under the radar in terms of how iconic it is. And a lot of people have copied this. I think Silent Hill actually very much copied this score. If you listen to the main Silent Hill theme, and the main theme of this, I feel like uh, Kira Yamaoka owes a lot to Philip Glass, and a lot of people do, uh, because of his score for Candyman. What's fascinating is he didn't see the movie first. He wrote this score based on how the short story made him feel. And when he saw the movie, he said that he wrote the wrong score for it because he didn't know he was writing a score for just a straight-up slasher film, which he felt the movie was. I don't agree with him. I, think how, I see how he could feel that way about it. But uh, it's amazing how the contrast of this beautiful score works to underline the tragedy of the film, and it actually brings out that aspect of the story a lot more in the film, which I feel like could have tipped over into just slasher land if not for this score, if not for this underlying current of heartbreak and sadness that, uh, that Glass wrote into the score. So had to put this high up on the list. Number two... No, no surprise here. Psycho by Bernard Herrmann. One of the most iconic horror soundtracks of all time and certainly one of the most iconic moments 
with those stabbing violins when Janet Lee's getting stabbed in the shower. Everyone does it. Kids today who have never seen this movie and don't know what the hell it's referring to, when they make a stabbing motion, they don't go, ah, they don't go, Michael's coming to get you. They go, because of that scene. That's how much it is pervaded into our social consciousness. And it's not like the rest of the score is, 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 is bad either. It all makes you feel uneasy even in scenes where we should be feeling normal you don't feel normal you feel like something's wrong because of herman's score and let's be clear bernard herman is one of the greatest unsung uh movie score writers of all time he did citizen kane he did the day the earth stood still which are both iconic uh, he, he absolutely changes the game here though with psycho he's another level and uh i guess i could probably also throw reanimator in at number two as well because they literally copied his score for that movie so had to put psycho in here uh, which means the number one must be a surprise because usually Psycho or Halloween is in the number one spot. But I'm going to go a little bit left field, although I, th- I hope some of you may agree with me. I think my number one, the greatest horror sound or horror score of all time is the Oscar award winning The Omen by Jerry Goldsmith. Just towering. If I cannot imagine this movie without this score making it feel as epic and apocalyptic as it does. Probably the greatest uh, moment in this movie is when that score swells up while Damien's just standing there staring at something. There's nothing happening. It's just the score. And yet you feel like the world is ending because of the, the, the brilliant, the Latin phrasing. And you just know Satan's coming when you put this score on. Uh, it's the reason it won the damn Oscar. It's back when it, uh, you know, that actually meant something. And Jerry Goldsmith is a legend too. He did Planet of the Apes, Chinatown, Aliens. Uh, this, however, is his high watermark. He, he got nominated eight times. He won it for this. And there's a damn reason. The Omen is the greatest horror movie score of all time. And if you don't agree with me, you can find me on Twitter at Sir Ian Dangerous, or you can find me on Twitter at Skinless Wonder. Also, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to Horror Palooza on your podcast app of choice. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Thank you for checking us out. But hit that subscribe button and leave us a review and a rating. Share us with your friends. Get the word out. We are on the Orbital Jigsaw Network at orbitaljigsaw.com. If you like pro wrestling, check out Busted Wide Open, where myself and Mr. Nick Howell run down the news and hottest topics about WWE, New Japan, and more. And that's it for week three. Come back next week for our final blowout episode and tweet me your thoughts on the movies I've seen. Tweet me your underrated horror movies. Tweet me about my top ten list. Surrey and Dangerous, Skinless Wonder, thank you so much, everybody. We will see you next time, right here.